If you weren't awake, now you are. Hello. We all right? <laughs> I really appreciate this feedback over here from y'all. It makes me feel a little bit better. They're like, it's okay, it's on, it's good, it's good. Might be a little loud, I'm not sure. Okay, it's all right, we'll get with it. Uh, good morning, I'm excited to be here. Glad you guys are here. We actually like, have been asking, we're like, hey, how are we, are we good? And like we kind of, I'm not gonna lie, we're comparing every gathering that we have. So we compare you every day to the 11:15 gathering. We're like, are they awake? Do they need more coffee? Do we need an espresso bar back there? What do we got to do to wake you up this morning? Yeah, okay, I love it. They're like, yes, more lattes, please. Uh, we're we're uh, we're stoked that you're here. This is like our first real week. Uh, at the well with two gatherings where like craziness is not happening outside. There's no Austin Marathon blocking our, uh, our entrance to get here. And so everyone's like an amen to that. Uh, we're just uh, really pleased and excited of what God's doing. We just thank you even for being here uh, at the early, you're the early risers, you know, you're the overachievers. You're the, you're the ones that are going to brunch later. That's really what it is. So... <laughs> Uh, kind of jealous of that. Hey, um, if you have Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5 today. We've got a lot to cover. We're going to go through it pretty, try to go through some stuff pretty quickly. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Um, if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are going to be coming forth. Uh, just raise your hand, slip it up high. Don't be embarrassed. It's our gift to you. Uh, if you don't have one, you can take it home. You can keep it. We'd love for you to have it. If you just need it for the day, just use it and leave it on your seat. Uh, please don't take it and throw it in your trunk if that's the case. We would love if you'd actually have it. Uh, and then uh, version also. version's a great um, a tool if you haven't downloaded that before. But we have an event through version that's published live right now that has all of our notes and some of the scripture reading. So you can go to the events tab on version. You can see that. Or you can just put this link that'll be up on the screen, I believe. Nope, we don't got it, they said. It's in your bulletin, actually. So uh, make sure uh, if you want to just do that, you can just copy and paste the, the link in your bulletin uh, today. Um, before I went into vocational ministry, I used to work for a consulting firm. And I worked for about four years uh, for this consulting firm. And one of the things that we did is we worked with companies and we worked with leadership uh, and leadership development, organization management. And what we would do is we would work with teams to try to develop high-performing teams. And one of the things that we often talked to people about was that uh, the reality of this study that came out of UCLA called the, uh, from Dr. Moravian, it was a study about first impressions it was the idea that within the first, uh, basically the major find out of the study was that within the first 30 seconds, sociologists realized that you make an impression of somebody the first time you meet them in the first 30 seconds that you meet them. So if you're new today and this is your first time coming here, you've already decided and made your, the verdict is out on me, all right? So either I'm obnoxious already or I'm not obnoxious. You haven't figured, you, you figured it out right now because 30 seconds has already passed. But think about that. When you meet somebody this week, in the first 30 seconds, you're going to start formulating in the back of your mind what you already think of them. And so what, these, what we would teach leaders is, hey, think about how you engage with people the first time you meet them. Because it takes, literally we would say this, it takes a total of 25 positive encounters to fill in and make up for a first bad impression on a first negative impression. 25 positive encounters for a bad first impression. And it got me thinking a little bit to think about okay, are we a people, you know, we say all the time, we don't want to judge people, don't judge them, but are we a people who do that anyways? Like, do we make judgments and rash decisions and perceptions of people pretty quickly when we meet them? I mean, 30 seconds is not a long time to get to a decision on somebody, right? And, and I could prove this right now for you. If I literally, if I went through a list of people today, and I just threw out some names here. Please, God, don't make any uh, 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 hard statements towards these people. But if I threw out some controversial characters like Donald Trump today, immediately something flags in your mind, all right? If I say Obama, immediately for some people, something flags in your mind. If I say LeBron James, I'm using really extreme people, right? If I use Kanye West for some of y'all, y'all are like, immediately your mind goes somewhere. Kim Kardashian. I'm using names that you know and that you have a, maybe have a strong perception on, but do we really know those people? Do we really have an idea of who they are? And then I thought about, what do we do? Do we make quick impressions of people? Do we do this all the time with each other? And then I thought about Jesus. I literally was just like, as I was thinking about this text today and Jesus and who he's going to talk about and of who he is and what he's able to do, I thought to myself, do we make impressions or do we get our mind around Jesus to a place where we are so sure, and so stuck on this is who he is, and don't you dare interfere and press in on my Jesus and how I know Jesus and who this Jesus is to me. 
Do we make a perception of him? If you have coworkers or people you walk with that are non-believers, you're like, I know that they have a perception of God. They have a perception of Jesus. And sometimes we as Christians will go on and on about how it's not fair that they don't know the Jesus I know. Let me show you the Jesus I know and I want to tell you about it. But you see people start to formulate this impression of who Jesus is. I, had a, um, I, I hang out and I teach college students once a week on the scriptures at UT Austin. And uh, we were sitting in a room and um, a couple of the guys brought a guy this week. And I really respected this young man that they brought because he came into the room and uh, the first thing he said, he was really bold and really just open. He just said, hey, I just want to let everybody know before we start. I don't know Jesus, I don't like him, I don't wanna follow him, I'm just here because I think he's probably a good guy and he's a good teacher and you guys seem like good guys. Well, welcome, I'm glad you're here. All right, uh, open your Bible too. And it was like, okay, but I really respected that about him because he just straight up said, this is where I'm at. This is who I am, this is what I see in him. And I think a lot of times we get really confused on what our perception is and the world gets really confused on what the perception of Jesus is. We believe he's a good guy. He offers us great advice. Barna recently did a poll on America's perception of Jesus. Interestingly enough, of the five findings that they had, number one was the majority of America does believe he was a real person. 92% of this country believes he was a real person. The younger generations, number two, is younger generations are less likely to believe that he was God. So they believe he was a person, but they're not so sure that he was God. Number three is Americans are divided on whether or not he was a sinner or not. 52% of Americans believe that Jesus was sinless in his life, but the other 48% believe he, was, he, he walked through, he dealt with sin, he was sinful like you and I. Number four, Americans say that they have made, most Americans have said they've made a commitment. It's 62% of adults have made a commitment uh, to Jesus with their life. And then number five was really interesting that most people who have said they follow Jesus are very conflicted over whether it's Jesus and Jesus' life and his works or good deeds that get us to heaven. 63% said that, yes, it's Jesus, it's his life, it's his saving work. The rest of the 47 said they're just not positive and they're just unsure. David Kinnaman said this about the study. He said, there isn't much we can argue about as to whether Jesus Christ was actually a historical person. Nearly everything we found in his, about his life and what people say about his life is that he existed. But it, his life, the rest of it, generates enormous and sometimes rancorous debate. The findings demonstrate that the strong degree to which Jesus remains embedded in the minds of Americans, that this impressive number begs the question, how well is our commitment to him really expressed? As much as our previous research shows, this research shows as well, Americans' dedication to Jesus is in many cases a mile wide and an inch deep. It's really interesting. We know a lot of us who claim the name of Christ, who Jesus is, what he claims to do and who he is, but it's interesting that a lot of the data shows that we're still unsure about some things and our commitment to him is still lacking in some places. Interesting enough, I mean, Jesus, this wasn't a new question in Jesus' day either. Jesus asked Peter, his disciple, he said to him, what are people saying who I am? Who are they saying that I am? They say, he's you're Elijah, you're a prophet, you're, you're like John the Baptist. They had all these things about what they were saying who Jesus was, you know? He's a good teacher. But then Jesus says, well, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? I think that's the question that God wants you, believer, today, and non-believer, if you're here today, to ask. Who do you say Jesus is? And then how does that line up with what Jesus says he is and who Jesus says he is? You see, you can make the Jesus that you want in your life if you want to. Nobody's gonna stop you. No one's gonna hold you back from developing and crafting a Jesus that you want. The problem with that is if it's a Jesus that you want, is unless you see the Jesus of the scriptures, that all you're really doing is making Jesus into you. You're making him into you as God, what you want. And God refuses to be made into anything but what he is. Scriptures tell us who he is. And I think the reality for the rest of your life, God is gonna constantly be revealing to you who he is, 
who you are to him and what he is able to do in your life. And that's what we're gonna see today as we open up scripture. A little bit of background as before we get going on Luke. Luke is actually one of two pieces of writing from the writer of Luke that makes up one large piece of writing. Okay, you have the book, the gospel of Luke, and then you have the book of Acts. And it actually makes up the majority of the New Testament. Interestingly enough, there's more content from the writer of Luke than there is from Paul in the New Testament. Paul was a companion of Luke. They would travel together, and Luke was a doctor. So the scripture that we're gonna read today in Luke 5 is actually can be found in Matthew 9 and in Mark 2 as well. And you'll see that actually Luke has way more detail, way more uh, uh, details about it. We wonder maybe possibly that's because he was a doctor, so possibly he's detailed, so he's gonna let you know more, uh, more information. But possibly even more fascinating, more interesting than that is why Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. If you open up to Luke chapter one and you read it, you can read it on your own later on. He says straight up, he writes to a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus was a Roman governor, most historians believe, a Gentile Roman governor. He didn't follow the ways of Jesus. And most people believe, most historians believe that he was the benefactor to Luke to be able to travel right and do what he did to compile the book of Acts and the book of Luke. And so interestingly enough, think about this. If he was the benefactor, if he paid for Luke to do this, a Roman Gentile governor, possibly someone who didn't believe in Jesus at the time, was the greatest beneficiary to you possibly today as you read the New Testament. Hello? You awake? That's amazing. That's amazing that somebody who's a non-believer said, I want to learn about Jesus so much, I'm going to pay possibly for you to get this compilation of all your writings. And Luke says, what I'm going to do is I want to compile all of these eyewitness testimonies, all this, he literally uses the word eyewitness. I want to compile all of this for you to see and be fully convinced of what Jesus fulfilled in his lifetime. The word there, and he uses in the beginning of Luke, is fulfilled. It's this idea that he wants you to be, in the Greek, fully convinced, fully certain. So, so he takes all of these eyewitnesses and he realizes, and the gospel writers realize at the end of their lives, as they start to compile some of these writings, they, they're thinking, okay, this guy, Jesus, for the rest of time will be talked about. We need people to know who he is and who he says he is and what he actually did. And so they started to compile it. And Luke says, I'm taking eyewitness testimony. I'm taking all this stuff. I'm compiling it. I'm delivering it to you so that you can be fully convinced of who Jesus was. He says, I'm gonna write an orderly account to you. It's like he's trying to avoid a really bad game of telephone. You know what I mean? Like century after century passing down what, what Jesus was and who he was. Jesus was the son of God. He was the son of God. He was the son of God. He was the son of God. No, he was a teacher. He was a teacher. No, he was a good man. He was a good man. No, he was this. And he literally says, no, I want you to be convinced of who Jesus said he was. And not just what he said he was, but what he did what he did. You know, it's a different thing. Anybody watching the Olympics right now? It's like ending, right? Is it ending today or something? Nobody knows? Maybe? Hello. Are we alive this morning? Okay. Uh, the Olympics, it's okay to talk, by the way. I don't know what you learned in church as a kid. I'm okay with that. So uh, the Olympics, it's like if I sat up here today and told you and said to you, hey, I could snow ski down a mountain like that guy on the Olympics. You'd be like, okay, whatever. Prove it. You know, I can go 58, 60 miles an hour, Casey, down that mountain today like that guy. You'd be like, prove it. It's one thing to say something. It's another thing to do something. If you can do something, is that not worthy of following the person who can claim to do something? Is it not worthy to surrender your entire life to a man who claims to be God and can raise people from the dead and can raise your life out of the ashes and the hardships and the brokenness that's going on in your world right now? What is it worthy of? And so you can hear that question today as we're gonna open up right here in Luke 5 and you can say, yeah, you, I know Jesus is God. I know he's the Lord of my life, but do you? What is it worthy of then for a man who can say one thing and follow it up and back it up? What is it worthy of you to do? in response to that. Luke 5 is where we'll be. And it's in the middle of this moment where Jesus, just a chapter before, has, been, has walked into a synagogue and opened up the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads to the people in the synagogue, this is my mission I have a mission. I'm here for something. And he reads to the people in the synagogue that the spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to proclaim the good news. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive, to recover sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. 
and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he says that. It's a messianic prophecy in Isaiah. He tells the people in the synagogue, this is what the scriptures say. He rolls up the scripture. He walks down to his seat. And right before he sits, he says, today, in your midst, this scripture is fulfilled. Boom. Mic drop. The guy you've been waiting for, the Messiah, the one to come to usher in a new kingdom against the oppression that you felt, I'm here today. And guess what they do? (laughs) They chase him out of town, down the street, down to a cliff, to the edge of a cliff, and they try to throw him off a cliff. Not my words, in scripture. They try to throw him off a cliff. It's It's like if Santa Claus was real and he came down the chimney to deliver you your presents and you shot him. I mean, that's like a Texas thing, right? Like, I'm here. I'm here to deliver what you want. I'm here today. And they run him down, and they try to throw him off the cliff. It's crazy. And you know what Jesus does? He's like, watch out. And it literally says he walked right through the crowd, and he just left the town. I mean, how bad to the bone do you got to be to be able to do that? My goodness. That fired me up. I was like, I'm done today. But what you should see is that Jesus is far more concerned with the quality of our response to him than he is with the quantity of the crowd around him. He's far more concerned with your, like some of y'all are from megachurches, and you're like, I came here to the well because it's a smaller church, and by the way, this is a megachurch in the world, okay? So hello, this is amazing. I am so grateful for our church and what we have here, but some of y'all came from this large crowd, and some of y'all want more of a large crowd, and it doesn't matter, but Jesus cares about, who cares? If he brings 500, 5,000, 50,000 What he cares about is you. Who do you say I am? And what is your response to me? Because these people had a different response to him when he told them who he was. And we're gonna pick up here. As we see Luke display the authority and the the ability of Jesus to heal demons, and we've seen him uh, to, to exercise demons and to heal many and to perform a miracle over nature, that's what's all led up to this moment. And we'll pick up in verse 17. Here we go. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. And they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Okay, so here it was. Uh, One of those days he was teaching, a large crowd begins to form. A lot of people begin to follow after him. A lot of people have heard about who he was. And so people are flushing in on every side. We know from the book of Mark, actually, in another account of this, that they were in a house, a Palestinian sort of house. And they were pressing in on him on all sides. There were people in every place. And it literally says they were back to the door and out the door. And he... He was just crowded and full on inside of there. And it was one of those days he was teaching and the Pharisees were there and Pharisees had come from everywhere. So they had heard about it. They had wondered and Luke is making it clear. People were from all over the place at this point to hear about Jesus. And Mark tells us that he was in Capernaum. If you don't know much about Pharisees, if you know much about scribes, the Pharisees were one of three religious Jewish um, sects of the time. They were uh, groups, parties of the Jewish faith at the time, one of three, okay, that were really influential at the time. They were the most influential at the time, along with the scribes, the teachers of the law. They gained a lot of influence because they opposed a lot of the oppression that was happening to them because of the Greco-Roman influence in their region, okay? So, hello, if you didn't know you were coming to history this morning, you got a little history lesson. It's called Hellenization. It was the idea that the Roman influence was moving in and pressing in on their ideals, their traditions, their ways of living, and they were pushing back and they gained a lot of influence because they pushed back and they held tightly to the Torah, the law, the writings of Moses. In fact, they held so tightly to it, it says in Matthew that they were the successors of this Torah on behalf of Moses. They carried and handled the law well. So that's who they were. They often get a pretty bad rap in scripture they should in a lot of ways they're kind of seen as antagonists but you know there are actually some really great instances of some pharisaic some pharisees uh, not doing pharisaical things and uh they actually you see as you especially get into the book of acts there's a lot of great things about them so they're not always bad in this text today we're going to see they're an antagonist but they're also with the scribes they're also with the scribes and before the advent of uh, universal education and literacy there was such a demand to understand the writings and the teachings And so these guys were the ones who wrote down the law. They wrote down the written code and they regulated the law in the Jewish life. They were experts in the Torah. Think of them like your formally trained theologians, okay? And the group of Pharisees would often sit under 
one scribe to learn from them. If there were issues of interpretation, it would go to the scribe to figure out what was this, how is this to be interpreted? And they would sit directly under them. And so then it says the power was with Jesus to heal. And I think if we're not careful, we could think to ourselves, well, does that mean that he has no power on some days? And some days he does have power and some days he doesn't have power. I don't think that's what it's saying. Actually, the only other place in all of scripture where it says the power of the Lord is in the story of the Exodus, in Exodus 12, where it says that God led the Israelites out and freed them from captivity of 430 years. So I think what Luke is actually saying here is he's saying to them, the power that was with God to free millions of people from slavery was with Jesus in this moment. He possessed that power. He's pointing out to him that he was God. And here's what it says. Let's stick with me here. 18, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. And finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst of Jesus. Okay, you can read this in a lot of different ways. I don't know how you read scripture, but one of the ways that I wanna encourage you to read scripture is not like a newspaper. You know what I mean? Not like a newspaper like, uh, hey, on one of those days, the teacher of the law, the Pharisees, the law was there, and they came to the village of Galilee in Jerusalem, and there was a Lord there with him, and behold, um, and, uh, yeah, they paralyzed him, they, okay, there was, okay, and he was seeking. You see what I'm saying? There's a way to read it that way, like a newspaper, or there's a way to read it like you're a movie director of a script. Hello? Are you with me? Come on, are we awake this morning, people? Y'all with me a little bit? We're going to see some head nods. There's a way to read the scripture that you can read it like a newspaper and be bored out of your mind and read black and white or you can read it and let it come alive. So some questions that come to my mind is how many men were here? How many, who were they? Do we assume that they were friends? How did they know Jesus? How did they get there? How tall was this house? Did this house have a ladder? How did they get to the roof? How did they lower him through the dang roof? Wait a second, did they bring rope and string to lower him through the roof? Are those questions going through your mind when you hear this? Because it should be in this moment. God wants to make this stuff come alive to you. He wants it to jump off of the page. And Mark tells us there were four men there were four men and there were four men that carried him so that so where did they carry him how did they carry him live in the story for with me for a second did they carry him across the heat was it hot outside did they carry him on this bed and carry him and drag him through town how did they get up on top of this palestinian house well, Palestinian houses actually normally actually had a staircase or a ladder of sorts to get to the top because it was a little musty on the inside. You know what I mean? And so they would try to get a little bit of air here and there. They try to get a little breathability here and there. And they'd go up top. They maybe would air out their clothes on top of their roofs. They would get a way to pray on top of their roofs maybe sometimes. And so these roofs were made with poles on top of it. They were often ha- uh, kind of cross-hatched. And they were stuffed in between with reeds and palm leaves and mud and straw. And it made this flat roof on top. So somehow these men came all across the town, went all across this place, climbed up the side of a ladder with a man who was paralyzed, carried him to the top, and they dug a hole in the roof. What? Uh, Come on, if we were today to be in here and this roof right here comes undone, Y'all, it would be the most dramatic scene you've ever seen in your life. I mean, I, look, there was one time, I'm not dogging on him, but there was one time that this guy who was a, um, a worship leader here, it was a great guy. I love him with all my heart. We joked about it a lot. We still, we joked about it afterwards. But 15 minutes into my sermon, I asked him to come up at the end of the sermon and play guitar. 15 minutes into my sermon, the dude's up on behind stage playing guitar. I'm like, bro, I guess I've got 20 minutes to go. And it's just like going off and he's just going in the background. And I'm telling you, it was the most distracting thing in the world to me as a teacher. I'm like, I'm trying to teach here. And I keep hearing this guy. Can you imagine if that roof right there today busted open? I mean, the hole, how big was the hole? Uh, let's just, hey, let's see if we can fit Bob like right through the hole a little bit. No, come on, put his legs first. Don't put him, don't put him vertical. Put, oh, we can't put him horizontal. If we put him horizontal, we gotta make a bigger hole. Dude, they already see you've dug the hole right now. And they lower him down? Like the guy comes down like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible? Like what do they do? Like, did they bring the rope from his house? And this is the craziest part about this whole thing. I love that Jesus doesn't get mad at him. I can just see Jesus. He's smiling the whole time going, look at these guys. 
And everybody's looking up at the roof. They're going, what is going on? What is this guy? I think he, what is that? Is that guy, what is he doing? I mean, and imagine, just to be real for a second, what if they dropped him off the bed while they were lowering him? I mean, if there ever was a place to drop a guy off the bed, it's right in front of Jesus so he can heal him, right? You know what I mean? But what, what, what would have happened if that happened? But it does bring a question to us today. And the question is this, how willing are you to bring somebody to the foot of Jesus? And if you've been in church before, you've heard that before. No, but really, who is Jesus? What authority has he had in your life? What has he done? And what desire, how much desire do you have to get somebody to the foot of the man that can heal him? I hope and pray to God right now there are some names coming to your mind. Because do you see here, these men were willing to risk their lives in front of religious leaders to pull a hole through a roof as crazy as it sounds. And they were willing to risk the life of a man they were going to lower on a bed in front of Jesus in the middle of a crowd because they knew this man possessed something that nobody else possessed. Let me ask you this question. How willing and how desirous are you to get to the foot of Jesus? Because the reality is, is if you keep reading on, it says in verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Uh, I think if you're not careful and make an assumption, which is what we were doing, even in the exegesis of this in our like, team time this week when we were going through the scriptures, uh, it's real easy to make an assumption in that word there, it says there, you immediately think it's the friend's. Like it's the friend's faith that put him up there. They, like somehow they grab, you know, Bob on the side of the street. Come on, we're taking you to Jesus. And they put him on the thing and they carry him. They drag him across town. And they, you know, they dug the hole. They're like, we got to get him healed. We got to get him healed. But you know that word there, actually, the rest of Scripture would not speak to that. The rest of Scripture would tell you all through Scripture, Luke 7.50, it's your faith that saves you. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So you hear that your faith is a gift of God and that faith is a gift of God is what saves you. Later on, maybe in the most clear place in Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not somebody else's faith. And that's very contrary to some of us who grew up in a culture or maybe even a religious system that believed that it could be their faith that would save somebody. I, had, um, I used to speak a lot to athletes, and one of the things I would often tell them is, hey, sometime you got to graduate from mama's faith and graduate then from game day faith, and then you got to graduate from game day, you know what I'm talking about, game day faith, like the Tim Tebow, like, Lord, Lord, please, please let us win the SEC championship today, or, you know you got to graduate from mama's faith and game day faith, and you got to figure out what's your faith. What do you believe? Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you say I am? And what he's saying here is it was all of their faith. God wants to denote the faith of the friends. He was, the attention, his attention was drawn to the faith of the friends. It did matter, and that is a great question. It's a good point to say, what would you do for somebody to help them get to Jesus? The other part of it is that this man who was paralyzed had faith believed in Jesus and who he was. And so, man, I mean, that just opens up a door of points today that you could think about. What are you, how willing are you? Like, did Bob ask his friends, like, please drag me, take me there, get me there? What did he do to get his friends to do it? What do you do to get to the foot of Jesus? Do you tell and share in the community of your life what you need help carrying with into the foot of Jesus? You with me? You tracking with me? I just preached a couple weeks ago on community, and one of the things that I really, man, you, you always preach, and when you go home afterwards, you always kick yourself. You're like, man, I wish I would have said that. I wish I would have done that. And you're like, Lord, I'm just going to let it go. I'm taking a two-hour nap right now. <laughs> one of the things I really wish I would have said, and praise God he's allowing me to say it today, is this. It's that I'm finding more and more community is not about finding it. It's about fighting for it. You can find community anywhere, but you've got to fight for it. Are you willing to fight with people in a good way for something? Maybe you all, maybe you see somebody that needs to be carried. Maybe you need to be carried. Are you willing to be vulnerable and transparent to people and say, I need you to carry me now? 
I'm gonna fight for this and I'm asking you to carry me now. And that's what happens in this story right here. It's a powerful testament of what community can do when believers are together, when they're open with each other, when they're vulnerable with each other. But here's the thing that I really wanna focus on in our last few minutes. It's that Jesus, why did he forgive his sins first? Okay, come on, people. You drug me across town in the heat. You got me above the, the roof. We dug a hole. Everything fell on the people. They're, you know, they're still brushing themselves off. The Pharisees are like, they got the mud on me, man. You know? And they get us there. And then he lowers him down, like MacGyvered the whole thing, and he Cirque du Soleil down to the bottom. And he's in front of Jesus. And then he's like, I'm here. These things don't, my legs don't work. And Jesus goes, I forgive you your sins. <laughs> okay, uh, thank you, uh, one. Appreciate that. Uh, but uh, I'm not, I'm, I, uh, I didn't come for that. Uh, you see, they don't work. It's why I had to go through the roof. I couldn't push people. Why does Jesus do that? I think it's either seemingly really cruel <laughs> or it's really insightful if you read the text and you soak in it a little bit. I think Jesus knew, don't miss this, that that man didn't even know he had a bigger problem than his own physical condition and circumstances. Let me say that again. I think Jesus knew something that that man didn't, that he had a bigger problem that he needed to deal with than his physical condition and his physical circumstances. Jesus says to him, you'll see, I understand your pain, I understand your suffering, but there's something worse that's happening than your circumstance and you're suffering, and it's the sin in your life. Maybe you find that somewhat offensive. I actually think it's more empowering for him to do this. What do you mean by that? Let me ask you a question. Are you more concerned today, hello, hello the well, if you're awake, are you more concerned today with the circumstances in your life, or are you more concerned with the response you have to those circumstances? What do I mean by that? Are you more concerned today with the realities and the circumstances that are poor and are negative and are bothering and are weighing you down in your life today? I'm not, not by any means, hear me clearly, I am not downplaying what is happening in your world and in your life today. Let me tell you clearly, the rest of scripture all throughout it makes it very, very clear. God cares. He sees you. You're on heaven's radar. He hasn't forgotten you. Let me be clear with that, but are you more concerned with those present realities than you're concerned with the response of your heart in them? It's empowering because you, can, you can't control often the circumstances that are happening to you in your life. But you sure as heck can control the response you have to them. And I think that's what Jesus wants us to address. He wants him to go deeper than the external condition, the external circumstance. And somebody in this building today needs to hear that, that God is not always immediately after the immediate raw fixture of your problems in the moment right away. That sometimes he's actually after something deeper, more radical. He's actually sometimes after the transformation of your heart. He's after this. He's a beast after this. He won't stop. They call him the hound of heaven, some writers called him. He'll stop, he will not stop until he gets deeper and he gets through all this and he digs deep into it and he gets to the core of what's going on here in you. This is what he cares about most because the heart of the problem in this world is the problem of the heart, amen? I didn't get a lot of amens there. But the heart of the problem in the world is the problem of the heart, and God will address your physical issues, your circumstances. He wants to address it. He knows the reality of what you're going through, and for this man, the main problem was not his suffering. It was his sin. I know this man probably is just thinking to himself as he's coming through the roof, if I could just walk again. If I could just get this thing and I could just walk again, if I could just get these legs and my life will be complete. Don't we do that, friends, all the time? Don't we say if I could just get this promotion, then my life will be better. 
If I could just get this relationship back intact, if I could pull it back together, God, if you would just help me, please, please, it'll be better. If I could just get my kids right, gosh, if I could just get my husband to do what I want him to do, if I could just get this to-do list finished, if I could just do these things, then my life will be better. Don't you think this entire man's hope has been in walking? But you know what I think Jesus wants to do today? Is he knows that it possibly, maybe, if he just heals the physical condition of him, then maybe two weeks, two months, four months later, the euphoria dies off and the discontentment starts again. And God wants us to find contentment in what matters the most. We are longing to fulfill and satisfy our lives, but oftentimes at the root of it is a brokenness that we only need to know that one person can heal that brokenness. And his name is Jesus. Amen. I thought somebody would there would go, yeah. Don't you see? Jesus didn't just deal with, with his condition, he dealt with the root of his condition. God's intention in creation was never that there would be paralyzed people in a world that he created whole and perfect. He created a perfected world. And something caused brokenness and the world to be out of whack from its original design of what God had and we are walking in a broken design. That is not to say, hear me clearly, it is not to say that God does not use those things. In fact, Scripture makes it really clear the reason somebody has that deformity or has that illness or has that suffering is so that the works of God might be displayed in them. God wants to use them, actually, as a megaphone for his hope. But you know what he is saying here? Is he's saying, I want to deal with the root thing that caused that originally. I want to deal with the root thing that caused that. Tim Keller, in his book, King's Cross writes a little bit about this, and he talks about this woman named Cynthia, uh, Cynthia, wow, I can't even say that right, Cynthia Heimel, and she wrote for a publication called The Village Voice, and she, uh, her job and her life had her interact a lot with celebrities, and one of the things she said was she would talk about how she would walk with people before they became famous, and she would see them become famous, and then she would see the frustration and the devastation of what happened when they thought their entire life, all I want to do is get famous, all I want to do is get this, all I want to do is get to here, if it would just happen, and then when he, she saw people actually get there, she said she saw their lives be destructed and destroyed even more. This is her quote. She said, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and in the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing was going to make everything okay, that was gonna make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, it actually happened, and nothing changed. They were still them, and the disillusionment turned them into howling and insufferable. Cynthia was sorry for them, Tim says. They had to think that they had thought that everything was going to be okay, and it wasn't. And then Cynthia added one last line, and Dr. Keller said it took his breath away. The last line she put in that article was, I think that when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. You know what Jesus said to this man? I'm not gonna heal your body right away. I'm gonna let you think that you have your deepest wish. I'm not gonna let you think you have your deepest wish. I'm not gonna heal it right away. Our hearts cling to many things, my friends. And I want you to know today that God wants the seat of your heart. He wants to sit there and be supreme. He wants to be primary. And he will not let the wishes that you have be greater than him. Your yearning and your longing for that be greater. Yes, he may heal you right away. He can do that. Yes, he may give you what you want. He can do that. God's not a formula. He'll do what he pleases. But I see in this text today that, we, that this man could make his wish his savior. And we would never say that out loud, but we do that also if we would just look deeper. Jesus says, if you'll have me, I will fulfill you. If you will take me, I will give you what you want. And if you fail me, 
I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you a thousand times over, a million times over. I'll take you back over and over and over and over because I'm just that loving and I'm just that good, but I want you, you're mine. There's a famous interview a long time ago where Oprah Winfrey said she couldn't believe that God says he was a jealous God. She couldn't serve a God that was a jealous God. Well, the problem that Oprah was making in that moment is she was equating our jealousy with God's jealousy, but you can't equate a perfectly good being with a finite broken being version of jealousy. God's version of jealousy is he knows that if he wants you and you, you get him and, and he gets you, that you're going to have everything you want. You're going to have everything you ever needed. And so he's jealous for your love. He wants you. He longs for that time in the morning or that time in the evening. How desirous are you to get to the foot of Jesus? The reality is, is that no other God says, no other God says that I will forgive your sins, that I will do the work. Muhammad, Krishna, Buddha, they never said your sins are forgiven. No, they said there's a process and a systemic way if you follow this way and you do these things, maybe, possibly, you will get to me and you will earn my favor. And Jesus says, no, I will do the work and I will forgive your sins. When Jesus forgives your sins, you get Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, when you are forgiven by Jesus, you get Jesus and that's enough. You don't get all... You don't get all the other, you get, uh, uh, let's just be honest, there's fringe benefits to following Jesus, right? I mean, we get community, we get a great family, we're in here praising God this morning, we get great coffee, thank you, shout out Shannon in the back. You get a lot of things when you follow Jesus, but Jesus says, if you're more concerned about those things that you get from following me than me, that's called an idol. It's called something that you've put above me. And I will have your heart because I want to give you what's best. I want to give you the most. I want to give you life with me. John 10, it talks, this is a story about the good shepherd. And the good shepherd is a shepherd that says, the sheep know my voice. I lead them into pasture. Psalm 23 talks about this shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me into green pastures. He makes me lie down. This is the good shepherd. It says, the sheep know my voice. Some of us are just wanting to be that sheep that runs off to another pasture on our own. Hey, I know that you're the shepherd and you've scouted out all these fields and you know every place that there's green grass and a great place for me to feed, but I'm going that way. <laughs> and he's like, okay, I'm gonna come get you. Pulls you back, brings you back over. And then he comes back and he pulls you back and he brings you back over. And he pulls you back and he brings you back over. You know what shepherds do to sheep who do that often? He breaks their legs. Don't ask me, ask a shepherd. <laughs> I'm just telling you. He breaks their legs, Why? because you keep running from me, and I want you. I love you. That's what the Lord does, because he's that desperate for you. He loves you. The greatest and most loving thing that Jesus could do in this moment in this man's life was not to heal him right away. It was to forgive his sins and make him right with God. And so let's finish the rest of this text here real quick. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question and they were saying, who is it that speaks these blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Great point, by the way. Only God. So it's like today if, Tor if, if Tori and Natalie were in here and they were sitting over there and I just saw them kind of like bickering and fighting a little bit. You know, they're just, quiet, we're in, we're in church right now, quiet. You know, and they're fighting. And then like I followed them out because they were still arguing. They went to the parking lot and they, were, they would never do this. He's a pastor, he doesn't argue. Uh, but they walk to the parking lot and they're arguing some more and she like opens the car door and she slams it and he slams it in her face and then he like picks up her bag and throws it on the ground. He's just angry. And I see it and I'm like, dang, dude, what's your problem? I walk up to him like, hey, you're forgiven. <laughs> Excuse me? Natalie's like, What? No, 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 you don't get to decide that for him. I'm deciding if he's forgiven right now. You know what I'm saying? Husbands, wives, your wives are like, yeah, that's right. Nod in your head. That's what happens here. The Pharisees are like, whoa, 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 you don't get to choose that. But what is he saying? What is God saying when he says, I when Jesus is saying, when he says, I forgive you your sins? He's saying, defense was against me. I forgive you. I forgive you. It's like what David says in the scriptures when David says, it's against you and you alone, God, that I have sinned, Psalm 51.4. And so Jesus proves himself again to be God 
in this moment. Verse 22, Jesus perceived their thoughts and he answered, why do you question in your hearts? What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, rise, pick up your bed, go home, and immediately he rose up, picked up his bed he had been lying on, and went home to glorify God. Mic drop number two. It's a legitimate question. Jesus calls himself the son of man. We won't get into all that today. You can read about it, Daniel chapter seven. Uh, It's actually a delegation of deity. Uh, It's what the Old Testament scriptures used it to talk about when Jesus and God the Father would come back together and they would usher in their kingdom. It was a way of saying a son of man would descend from the clouds. It was a way of saying God, God himself. He was calling himself God. It was his favorite designation of himself, by the way. So if you ever have anybody tell you Jesus never called himself God, well, that's not true. In fact, in this text, there was four times where Jesus proved, and Luke is proving that he's God. He heals a man's paralyzation. He tells him his sins are forgiven. He calls himself the son of man. And it said, by the way, he perceived their thoughts. Can you all do any of those things? <laughs> I can't. He's God. And Luke is making it real clear. He's God, and he's designating his authority what he can do. And so I'll I just want to close, uh, but I want to ask this question. And by the way, it does say in verse 26 that they all went home amazed, glorifying God. It's amazing what happens when we see God for who he is. I do want to close, though, and ask you a question. I want to ask you, who do you say he is? Like, really, don't let that fly past you this morning. Who do you say Jesus is and what he's able to do? How do you view him? Do you have a deep intimacy with him? Are you madly in love with him? Where are you with him today? I've got a time frame on here. I'm supposed to finish up about a minute ago, but I don't want to for a second because I'll be honest. I'm be, I, actually, it's funny. It's a side note. We have a joke on our staff. If you go over the time limit, you buy everybody breakfast. So, okay, I'm buying everybody breakfast tomorrow morning in our staff meeting because I want you not to run away from this for a second. Where are you with what you actually believe about this man named Jesus and what he can do? Do you love him? Have you lost the love of a God who will recklessly pursue you, who will not stop going after that sheep and pulling him back into the flock? That's him over your life today then he hasn't stopped chasing you. Are you worn out? Are you tired? Are you burned out from church and religious things? Do you trust him? Let me go back to the question that he says when he asked him, what's easier to say, to get up and walk or your sins are forgiven? The easy answer in that question is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because I say it all the time. Preachers say it to you all the time. And you're like, yeah, I know, dude. My sins are forgiven. I get it. It's easy to say that, right? And so Jesus says, no, so you know that I have authority to say that. I'm gonna make this man walk. But I wonder, I wonder, was Jesus really saying that it's actually harder to say your sins are forgiven? Is it harder to live a perfect life? To walk into this mess, to be tempted and tried in every way that you've been tempted and tried is what the scriptures say, and to walk into the thick of this destruction in this world, to live perfectly, to go then be accused wrongfully, to take the punishment of you turning your back on God, on himself, and to be wrongfully accused, beaten, mocked, spit on, and hung on a cross and abandoned by the people closest to him. Was it harder to say, get up and walk, or is it harder to say your sins are forgiven? This is your God. This is what he did for you. So today, wherever you're at, ask the question, if you don't know him in here today, I don't want you walking away with asking that question, who is Jesus? 
And did he offer this? Is he who he says he is? Because you can say a thousand times he's a good, moral, righteous man, or you can realize what he says of himself. I'm God. I have the power to make you right. And that same promise is a daily reminder, Christian, for you. Tim Keller says this was the moment he placed his deposit down on your forgiveness. (laughs) Wow. The band's gonna come back up here. Um, Go ahead and y'all come on up. But I want you to think about this. We're gonna play a song and uh, there'll be communion on each side. Communion here, here, in the back over there. And uh, you have an opportunity today to ask the Lord right now before you leave and go have pizza or brunch or whatever, what is it that's sitting on that position that has had greater impact in my life than you right now, that I care more about right now more than you. It's an opportunity to engage with a God whose love is reckless. No, God's not reckless. He's very intentional. But his love is like reckless. It's wild, it's fierce, and he will keep pursuing you wherever you're at. He will not stop until he gets this heart. And he'll constantly say, I want your heart. I'm your father, and I love you. Let's pray. Father, I pray today, God, I just don't want this moment to go by I just don't want this to be another church Sunday so bad for people in here and for myself. I want us to face you today, like come face to face with you and ask the question, where am I, Lord? What have I put ahead of you? I want us today, God, to remember that you've pursued us and you crazily went after us. I want us to remember those moments that we had when we first came to know you. God, what was that like? What was that, those moments like? And I was excited to tell people about you and the love that you had, and I was ready to just bring anybody to you. God, I wanted you to take us there this morning. Would you do that, please, Lord? Only in a way that you can. I'm just a man. I'm a motivator up here, God. Please do that. And I just pray for the friends in here who don't know you and they have been questioning and wondering. I pray they would hear about your reckless love of them today, that nothing has placed them too far from you. You will climb a mountain. There's no mountain you won't climb down. No wall you won't break down to come after them today. I pray they would feel your presence and know your love for them and that your sheep in here today would hear your voice, that the miracle that Luke is writing is the miracle that we will get what we really want if we want Jesus. We'll get him. We love you.